conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, and so we continue that in chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus is perplexed. He doesn't understand this. And Jesus is perplexed. And he says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Jesus really felt like that the things he taught so far were pretty first principle. He says, you know, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how, you, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The truth is, there were things a lot deeper and more difficult for him to, to teach and explain than these things. There was much more for him to have to comprehend than this, and yet he's still having a hard time even at this level. Jesus was the one who's uniquely qualified to tell us the heavenly things. You look at verse uh, 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Who else has been up in heaven to see and know about the things that Jesus is teaching? He is the only one that can speak authoritatively to us about heavenly things. He is, in fact, the Son of Man. And uh, so, Jesus gives his credentials and indicates that they really should have been able to understand this. And uh, then he says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, you remember that story about the serpent in the wilderness? Remember what had happened to the people? What happened? God was punishing them. By? With serpents, snakes. Yeah, sending all these poisonous snakes in and, and biting the people and they were dying. And what does he have Moses do? Yes, make this bronze snake and lift it up and everybody tur who turns to the bronze serpent and looks upon it would be saved, would be cured of the snake bite. In the same way, Jesus was going to be lifted up. How was he lifted up? On the cross. It's an interesting word to use about Jesus' crucifixion, don't you think? Would you have really thought of that as being, being lifted up? I mean, really, in a lot of ways, that looks like being lowered down. You know, you're, you're being humiliated. But for Jesus, his greatest exaltation was in his greatest sacrifice and humiliation. Josh? Forgot? Okay. So, you know, he says that we must turn to the Son of Man who's lifted up. 
and believe in him for us to have life. Now he's going to use that phrase lifted up several times to refer to his exaltation on the cross. And uh, it's just going to surprise us, I think, every time we see it because it just is a different way of looking at it. Jesus' greatest glory was in, was in his greatest humiliation. And so we can have eternal life in him if we believe. That's what he's telling Nicodemus. Jake. Is that uh, tied in with Isaiah 52, where the servant shall be exalted and lifted up? Good question. In Isaiah 52, it almost seems like that's the outcome after he's brought down and humiliated. So Isaiah 52 may not be using him that same way, because it seems to almost contrast those two pictures. I don't know. Roger. How did Jesus go from talking about, um, he qualified to speak about heavenly things, and then talking about Moses and the slave, and him being lifted up. Is this an example of these heavenly things that he needs to talk to Nicodemus about? I'm just having a hard time seeing the transaction. That's what I would say, is that he pursues some of the teachings that he needs to give to Nicodemus. Seth? Uh, what is the significance of the phrase son of man? Is it showing the, the human side of Christ? Yeah, that's a very good question. Son of man is a term that is used about 70 times in the New Testament. Almost always by Jesus speaking about himself and almost never by anyone else talking about Jesus. And so son of man, why would Jesus use that? Well, look at it this way. When we look at Jesus, what's the thing that's most impressive about Jesus to us? That he's the son of God. What's the thing that was most different for Jesus when he was here on the earth? That he had become the son of man. You know, because he had been son of God. But now he's human. So I think it's emphasizing his humanness. That he is, is actually a man. That's news about Jesus. Maybe not so appropriate for other people to say about him. But for him to say about himself, I've become the human one, is, is, is the real change that took place for him. That's what I would say about that. Now, there's a lot of other things that people say. Uh, some people would connect that with Daniel 7. I don't know about that. Maybe. But I think especially it just emphasizes the human side, whereas we would look at the divine side to see a man that's God. That's amazing. For Jesus to become a man, that was amazing. All right, other thoughts and comments? Lainey. Um, I'm kind of confused about the pronouns <coughs> Okay. Who's even speaking? The church that I said you, we speak of what we know. And like our testimony, what is that It's a great question. <laughs> I would say Jesus and his father. That um, makes the most sense to me. Would it be like the Trinity or just him and his father? More often, Jesus would seem to just group him and his father together in statements like this. Yes? Uh, in talking about the son of man, um, how would Jesus calling himself the son of man compare with that title being used for people like Ezekiel in the Old Testament? Maybe it doesn't. Not at all. You know, I mean, Ezekiel, that's God saying, human one. And Ezekiel almost seems like it's making sure Ezekiel understands he's a, he's a human being. 
you know, not exalting himself too much. So maybe in that sense, but, but I'm not sure there's a direct correlation. I'm not sure he's seeing, I'm not sure he's using it because God used it. Better. Do you think maybe there's something to the way that Jesus takes a general term like human one and applies specifically to himself? He is the human one. He is the ultimate. And maybe that's you know, referencing like Romans uh, 5, talking about he's, he's the second Adam. He's the, there's something about him that was supposed to be different. It was what Adam had lacked. He was fulfilling that. I mean, a lot of people say that. I'm not sure I've come to that point yet, but maybe so. Other thoughts? Mason? I think sometimes uh, I'm guilty of being like Nicodemus in that I see something in God's Word or someone confronts me with an error in my own behavior or thought, and my first response is, that, that doesn't make any sense. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and do exactly what Nicodemus does here. And instead of trying to think about it and understand it, just, that, that's silly. Good point. Yeah. He says that he told him, told Nicodemus earthly things already. I'm not sure I understand the difference between the things he told him and uh, earthly things and, and heavenly things, like how that would differ. Um. Well, I mean, I think, I, I'm not sure if I have a good handle on that either. Um, but evidently Jesus considers the new birth teaching to be more or less a basic earthly thing. That there are things more directly focused on the Lord, perhaps, or more heavenly things. I don't know. I, I see the difference between something basic and something deeper. Relating that to earthly and heavenly, I'm not sure. Could the earthly things possibly be the earthly illustration of the wind? Could be. Others? Okay. Um, then, they, they, you know, the next section is challenging as far as who's speaking it. In my red letter edition here, it's still gotten red letters from 16 to 21. I really think this is John reflecting on this. John, the, the writer of the gospel, and not Jesus' words to Nicodemus. But that's a question mark, so you can look at it either way. 16 to 21. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds are carried out in God. Right. He shifts, shifts the past tense, which is a sign, I think, that it's John was talking. And he reflects, for God loved the world in this what? That he's, he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is an amazing statement. That's uh, rightly taken and meditated on greatly. That's why God sent the son of the world, not to judge the world per se, but to save the world. That was God's purpose. The goal 
of Jesus coming with salvation, not condemnation, although condemnation is the result of rejecting what Jesus did. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. So Jesus didn't come to condemn, though condemnation will result if we reject him. I think that's the idea. When we reject Jesus, we more or less judge and condemn ourselves. It's kind of like belittling the Mona Lisa. You know, what if you were to go into a museum and like, ah, hey, that's not very good. You know, I didn't do that very well. If I, if I went into a museum and started throwing off on the Mona Lisa, what would that tell you? Would that tell you the Mona Lisa wasn't really that good a painting? What would that tell you? Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, that the Mona Lisa's really not on trial anymore. You know, it's just a matter that I don't have much artistic taste if I do that. You know, when people reject Jesus, they are showing something about themselves, not about Jesus. So I say, I just can't really believe in Jesus. That doesn't tell you Jesus is not a person who's believable. It just tells you they don't have a good heart. And so when people reject Jesus, it reveals that they are unbelieving people. They're hard-hearted people. They're darkness-loving people who will be condemned because of that. And he goes ahead to talk about the, uh, what happens when the light comes into the world. When the light comes into the world, we've got two choices. We can love it or hate it. We can be drawn to the light because we love God, or we can be repelled by the light because we do evil. Which way will we go? That's really the question. Uh, like Nicodemus, we all come from the darkness to the light. How will we respond? Questions are coming. Are there any other points at which, besides maybe at the beginning of the book, John makes an editorial comment and doesn't identify himself or make it clear that he's the one coming to? Well, in my judgment, 31 to 36 will be that. And that's really kind of the debate. Both of these are similar things. Are they extensions of Jesus' comments to Nicodemus and to John, uh, to, or, or uh, extensions of John the Baptist's comments in the second case? Or are they the narrator's comments? So I think they're parallel, and you usually either take them as being Jesus' words and John's words, or you take them, John the Baptist, or you take them as being John the narrator in both cases. Chapter 21 has some more of that kind of commentary in it. Perhaps a little bit, yeah. So, uh, there may be other passages, I don't know. Seth? If it is Jesus, he would be referring to himself as the only begotten Son of God in verse 18, where... Most other times, it's the Son of Man. Possible. Good point. Other thoughts? Okay. Um, 22. Let's go ahead and do 22 to 30. came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with him and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there, 
and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, you don't really know this in the other Gospels, but there was a period of overlap in the ministries of John and Jesus. And during this time, here John is baptizing in this place where there's much water. I do think that's an argument for immersion. Uh, not necessarily the point, but you wouldn't need much water if you were just sprinkling. Um, and, but some of John's disciples had a discussion with a Jew about purification, and they come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, Behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, what do you think they are thinking when they say this to John? He's taking your place. Yeah, like he's upstaging you. You gave him the start. You did all this stuff. You testified about him. And, all, and look, now they're all following him. It's like, it's like to them, Jesus owes his career to John. And now he's taking over. <laughs> and the fact that they thought that, I think helps us see even more clearly the good attitude that John has. He says, first of all, this is a good statement in verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. John is the kind of man who sees the hand of God in everything. And then he says, you yourself are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. You know, John did not come to attach people to himself, but to Jesus. He's not, there's no rivalry. John's work is to get people to follow Jesus. And so he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is tremendous. John sees himself as the, the, the best man. But in their society, the best man did more to get the bridegroom together. You know, he's more involved in that. But the best man was not coming to try to get the bride to marry him. The, the best man's job was to get the bride and groom together and get them married. And when he did that, his work was accomplished. His joy was full. That's what he wanted to do. That was John's purpose, to get people to follow Jesus. So often we struggle with trying to get people to follow us. We want people to look up to us. We want to have a personal um, commitment of people to us. That's not the point. That wasn't what John was trying to do. When people follow Jesus and not so much us, we ought to rejoice. That's exactly what, what we want to happen. So, this motto 
He must increase, but I must decrease. That's really cool. That's exactly what we need to say. When people try to elevate us, we need to not accept it. We want to decrease so that God may increase. That's what we want. We don't want people praising us. We want them praising God. John's attitude is awesome. It's so good that we are told all these things here. Because it really helps us, you know, challenge ourselves with our own attitude. I come into questions to this point. Roger. I love verse 27, and I don't know if I can get it wrong, but it's almost like John is saying, you know, God gave me a part, he gave him a different part, and I can't try to play his part in what he's doing. I think that helps me a lot when it comes to jealousy. Uh, which I think is a big problem. And that is, for example, if somebody else has a better ability than the one that I have, I need to say, well, God has given me my ability, and there's certain things that I can do, and God has given other people other abilities, and I need to rejoice in the fact that I can't do what he does, and I need to be happy with that, and he may, you know, he may do stuff that I can, but well, God has given me my part, he's giving him his part. I think that helps me to just be content, and that's what you see in John. He's content with the role he's playing. And a lot of times we're not. We want to play a role that we're not just because uh, we feel like we, need, we want people's attention, more people's popularity. Amen. Yes, Shane? Explain to me what verse 25 has to do with verse 26. There is a dispute about purification. Why they ask John that question? Because of that, I don't understand. I don't know either. Great. I was going to ask. Okay. Somebody go? Elizabeth. Uh, is there a connection in 25, the discussion they were having, uh, to what they asked John? Yeah, that's what we're asking. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody know? Somebody got a good answer, Mason? You got a good answer? I can speculate. Okay, speculate. Well, if they're talking about purification, and John's disciples, so this Jew is saying, no, this is how purification is done, and John's disciples say, no, purification is done through baptism, and John's the only one that's got the right answer on this. Then the Jew says, yeah, but what about Jesus? He's baptizing too. And so the disciples go, hey, yeah, he is. So they run to John and go, you know what he's doing? He's taking away your market niche. <laughs> <laughs> That's as good as anything I've ever heard of. So uh, if you like it, take it. If you don't, well, invent something better. <laughs> Logan. What I can assume when I was reading is I wondered if maybe the Jew was a follower of Jesus and then was arguing with John's disciples about whose baptism is right. Usually Jew and John is used for enemy Jews. So we, we read about the Jews a lot. And it's funny how Jew will be used in John. Because sometimes it's like they'll talk about the Jews and yet they're Jews themselves. But the Jews seem to be used more for Jewish leadership that's antagonistic to the gospel. So I don't know. Ben. We, we talked a little bit earlier about how you have to see it from the top perspective, the spiritual perspective. And... That's why I think we struggle so much with this idea of jealousy. We he receives something from heaven. Like, well, you know, think about it. You can't receive unless God gives you, but it's he receives it. You don't think about from heaven came this thing he has. That should just be something you rejoice in so much. And we see gifts that others have been given, blessings that fall upon them, and we focus on the fact that you know, these are blessings and, and what good they can be put to as opposed to who they come to. We focus on the source instead of the end result. And we feel less of us jealousy. Good point. Yes. Another thing is that John was like, 
God sent him to help the people by him, and that's the connection like today. We don't need, uh, we need to spread the word in school and every, the worldly people, and when we don't need to do it, we, we're not doing it to get praise from people, we're doing it to get praise from God. Yes. Very good. Other comments? Patrick. The thing about about these good works about jealousy of people's talents and abilities of the Lord, anytime it talks about good works in the scripture, especially in Ephesians uh, 2.10, it talks about how God prepared good works beforehand. And so when we get caught up on, well, he's doing so good in this, and they're doing good in that, and we start getting jealous, we need to remember God was good enough to create these good works beforehand. We've got to stop giving these different measurements to good works and to abilities and talents. And we need to remember they all come from the Lord. And in that, we praise the Lord. We take away this praise of man, essentially, and give it all to the Lord. Amen. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, you know, we need to trust the Lord more. We need to do our part and trust that He's got people that are doing other parts. And if they're doing them well, thank God. But I don't think you said yet, but I just think it's really cool. Um, the attitude John has as far as how it's his joy that God's plan and God's will is being carried out. No matter what he's doing to him, that was his joy. And a lot of times we don't find the, find the joy in God's will being done. Um, and we, we don't, don't see that. We don't see that no matter what we're going through, we don't see that that's God's will. And I think it's been important for us to find joy. Good point. Other thoughts? I have about 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth in speech and earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus has first-hand knowledge of truth. He's, above, he's from above, in contrast to those who are from the earth. You know, the ordinary men don't have the ability to reveal things that Jesus can reveal. His revelation is without parallel. It's not on a par with any other religion because everybody else is from the earth. And so what do they speak? They speak from the earth, but Jesus comes from above. Now, I think these are probably John the Apostle's reflections on this. But at any rate, Jesus is the one who testifies what he's seen and heard. Verse 32, he has the, the opportunity to know and to testify these heavenly things. And if we receive, most people don't receive. No one receives his testimony in verse 32. But the one who does receive his testimony 
more or less puts his stamp of approval, the seal of approval, on what Jesus says and, and agrees that God is true. Of course, God is true. But if we agree that God is true, then we are corresponding with God himself. So, Jesus has the credentials. He can speak from heaven. We need to accept his testimony and put our seal of approval on it. He continues to talk about the special relationship that Jesus has with God that gives him special ability to reveal God. He's the one that God sent, verse 34. He speaks the words of God. God gives the Spirit to Jesus in an unmeasured degree. The Father loves the Son. The Father's given all things in the hand of the Son. You look at verse 34 and 35. Who can say that? You know, we, we may, you know, think, well, what about world religions and what about Buddha and Confucius and whatever else? Name me one religious leader who's ever been able to say everything that verse 34 and 35 says. Jesus had a special relationship with God that gives him special, unique qualifications to reveal God. And therefore, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides in him. The destiny of every person is determined by how he responds to the Son. That's what he's saying. You either have life or wrath, depending on whether or not you believe and obey the Son or not. Life, we come back to this point, life is in the Son. You must believe and obey him to have that life with him. So I think that's just a very strong passage that emphasizes the greatness and authority of Jesus and our need to believe and obey him. Comments and questions? Roger. Um, why in this section? I don't know, it's almost like it looks random, or is he seeing that in contrast to John? Well, I think he's sort of giving a kind of concluding remark about Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, I mean, here's why John must decrease and he must increase, because look at who Jesus really is. And here are the credentials that would be appropriate for Nicodemus to understand, and here's how he can reveal these heavenly things. So I think it's just an appropriate spot to stop and say, here's who he really was, and here's why it's so important that everybody respond properly to him. But perhaps especially, here's why he must increase and John must decrease. Yes. Some scholars have speculated that the book of John may be like kind of a collection or a compendium of sermons that John preached from the life of Christ. And that these are kind of his sections where he's giving his points or something like that. I'm not totally convinced, but you know, if, if that works for you, maybe that would help explain why these are there. Yeah. Other thoughts? Great. Um, I think he's saying that to Jesus, God gives the Spirit an unlimited degree. You know, he might measure out the Spirit to others, but Jesus gives the, gets the total amount. Jake. I'm kind of John 7, Spirit of Truth, 14, where in 
God gives the Spirit truth to give the message that we need through the Spirit. Jesus delivers the words of God too, and He is given that message from God from their relationship with Him without measure. And that just flows endlessly from Him. Okay.